You are now listening to Soul Power to the People podcast with Tess Fregera. It's a podcast designed to bring awareness on intended or unintended crimes against humanity, how we can rise above it, claim our divine inheritance, and return the soul power to the people. This is Soul Power to the People podcast with Tess Fregera. Every time we talk about the, the subject of child sex trafficking, uh, I feel really heavy. But I want to thank and acknowledge our guest today, Jack Gregory, for being so kind to talk about this openly. What drew me to Jack? On his eighth birthday, he was told he was adopted. At 10 years old, he took his first drug. At 12, he was being sexually abused by adults. 14 trafficked and passed around between teachers and adults and so so on and so on and so on and then at 38 had a psychological breakdown and now he is dedicated to the art of the film he also has written three books co-authored several others he regularly speaks to medical professionals about working with addicts work on countless films and television projects and now talks about his past and the book that he wrote that I really am uh, I, I want to learn more is his book on human trafficking between the street lights and red lights escaping human trafficking sexual slavery and exploitation And the reason this is important to me personally is I awoken to reading that 800,000 kids a year are being sexually trafficked. And they try to cover that up and say it's nothing but a conspiracy theory. So, Jack, welcome to Soul Power to the People podcast and would love your voice, your light on exposing this. What is the truth and what's the lie and what's the cover-up? There is massive deception going on. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I initially wrote the book in 2017 after spending six months working with escapees of um, human trafficking, sexual slavery and exploitation. And whilst getting their stories, I, I saw the common link with the abusers and I started putting two and two together and I'm thinking okay, this person did this to me, and this person did this to me, and this person did this to me, I was trafficked. You know, I just saw it as abuse. I saw it as sexual abuse and and nothing more. And I, before I get into that, I suppose I should tell you a little bit about sort of where I'm from and uh, how I kind of fell into it. Yes, please. So I was born in Scotland in 1977, raised in a place called Yorkshire, a county called Yorkshire in England. And I grew up through the 80s and 90s. And I grew up in a small small mining town that was surrounded by four other mining towns, well, many others, actually. You know, it was very much a mining community. And um, our prime minister, in her infinite wisdom, uh, Margaret Thatcher, decided that it would be cheaper to buy coal from South Africa and France and tried to close... Well, I did close down a lot of the mines. Now, you had the unionists like Arthur Scargill and, um, you know, men like that, uh, and Neil Kinnock, who, you know, worked with the unions of trying to get people, but um, a lot of the towns started to fail. So once affluent towns, it, it 
got caught in a domino effect. The, uh, the mining towns and the market towns around started to fail because people started losing their jobs. And when people were made redundant from the mine, all they got was a gold carriage clock and uh, a, a thank you. And that was it. Not even a great deal of redundancy money, if any. That really affected the mood of, of, of the towns. I suppose I was quite a happy-go-lucky kid up until I was eight. And then um, on my eighth birthday, after a really nice birthday, cakes and stuff like that, and, and pop, soda pop, you know, lots of presents. I was sat at my mum's knee um, in the evening and she had a tear in her eye. I remember it vividly. And she said that she loved me very much, but I wasn't really their son. And they'd adopted me. So at eight years old, I'm hearing this. And I suppose most people that would hear it with a normal sort of mind would say, well, you know, I'm loved by someone. But to me, it was uh, eight years old, it was rejection. I began to play up, you know. I was the weird kid in the neighbourhood. No one wanted to play with me or, you know, I always felt different. I was physically weak, um, mentally weak and meek and I'm very mild-mannered. Um, but when I lost my temper, I lost my temper. But then I learned this and... I, I was dyslexic as well, and there wasn't a word for dyslexia really when I was growing up. Um, so I was sent to a school um, for maladjusted children that was masked as a special school. Um, and this is where it all happened. You know, it all began and it all happened really because I couldn't read all right, but I always had a good mind for words. I was good with words. I was good with poetry. I was good with general knowledge and connecting things. Um, I could learn things quite quickly in my mind. When it came to writing it down, I, I couldn't do it mm. or, or read it. I was in the special school and they rewarded bad behaviour with things like going away with the army youth team, learning to climb, cave, abseil, kayak. They took us away, mountain climbing and, you know, all these things. So by the time I left school, I there was no exams. And all I left school with was certificates on answering a private telephone changing a fuse and a plug, and riding a 50cc moped. That was nothing. But um, the way that I dealt with this rejection and in my divergent mind was because I had an existential crisis. I didn't know who I was. I thought I could be anybody that I wanted to be. So I would lie. And there would be, but it was for attention. So the, it would be the most outwardly, massive lie that couldn't possibly be truth but I, it, it was attention I saw any attention at all was attention whether it was good or bad and then these adults these social workers these teachers they started to abuse me sexually um, started to touch me inappropriately and you know when we were away they would you know because we'd, we'd, we'd camp out at, at weekends sometimes you know, and, and there would be a few of us that were the special boys. And they would say, well, you're a liar. So if you ever tell anybody, nobody's ever going to believe you. Mm. So from the start that I believed that lie and I didn't think anybody would believe me. So I, I suppressed it for many years. You know, I put up with it. And then when I left school, uh, well, even before I left school, I was drinking and taking drugs. And um, one of the teachers arranged for me to go to a certain anonymous meeting saying that I was going to get help. And I got there and, you know, this guy said that he'd be my sponsor and he was going to help me. But he was a friend of the social workers and the teachers. So I was being passed around between all of them. But it wasn't just males. 
it was some some females as well, mostly male. And that happened from around about 12 to 16, 15, 16. It was an unspoken thing between, I suppose, four or five boys. And I suppressed it for many years. I didn't speak about it. I drank on it. I used drugs on it. I, I tried to forget it, but it was always there dormant. So I would have so long clean and sober and that would be great. And then these things would start coming back and then... I couldn't deal with the trauma, so I, I I drink and use drugs, and I got caught in that vicious cycle. And at some point, when you were 21, you got incarcerated. Yeah, so I, like I said, I was very mild, meek and weak for a long time, but when I realised that actually I could take a punch and hit back pretty much harder than that punch, you know, I would be a certain personality with certain people, so they would think I'm no threat. You know, I didn't get any trouble, but with other people. And I was in a nightclub and I saw somebody hitting a woman and I lost my temper and I put him in ICU for 10 days. I lost it. I just remember getting dragged off him behind a nightclub about 300 yards away from a police station caught on CCTV, so it wasn't the most sensible thing to do anyway. And I hated every minute. There's there's, there's so many people that, you know, are in podcasting and, you know, that I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm in a certain group of people um, as, as a podcaster myself, um, you know, and I get a lot of people, true crime and stuff like that, and they talk about their prison careers. I went once and swore I'd never go back. It was awful. How long were you in jail? 18 months. And, and I, I appreciate your sharing your journey from that you were a happy kid before you were told you were adopted. You had a great birthday celebration there. And then it sounded to me that it went downhill from there. You lost your sense of self. You lost your confidence. It went down. Um, you started focusing on everything that is wrong with you. That made you susceptible to the adults taking advantage of you. Would that be correct? Yes, yeah. yes, because they, they could see that, you know, it, it was a cry for help. It was a cry mm -hmm. for help, but they could see that it was a cry for attention and I was getting attention, but they took advantage because, you know, they, they, they knew that I really wouldn't say anything because nobody would believe me. At 14, you were being trafficked and passed around. So can you define for me and the listeners, what is trafficking? What does that mean? I was what's called domestically trafficked. Most people watch these films and they see things like Taken, that's international trafficking, and it happens. And you get people that are forced into sex work, forced labour, forced debt, into servitude that way. I had one purpose, and that was to be used as a sexual tie. Domestically trafficked is being trafficked in your own country. Was there exchange of money? I don't know. Really don't think I want to know. There doesn't have to be money involved in it. You know, I was groomed and I realised that I was groomed because of some of the people that I spoke to for the book. Because I didn't put two and two together, I didn't realise all these things. It's only in my sobriety and it's only in the past couple of years since I've been podcasting and, and, and speaking on other people's shows and talking to other people on my shows that I've actually started talking about it openly. Wow. Believe, um, so this is a very recent realisation for you. 2017 was when you wrote the book? Yeah, 2017, I, I, I realised some of the key connectors started to learn about my trauma. In 2015, I had a massive mental, physical and spiritual breakdown when I was in the hospital. I had tuberculosis, pleurisy mm -hmm. and other things. I died for over four minutes 
I ended up with brain damage through hypoxia, the drugs that they were giving me in hospital, um, the tazosin was um, not only highly toxic, um, but it was toxic to the mind, it, it, it caused hallucinations, visual and auditory. I became convinced that the world had come to an end because I'd spread this super virulent form of a deadly TB. Um, and that was for, for weeks. I went through, I wouldn't speak, I wouldn't eat. I was six stone, six ounces in the hospital bed. And I faced every single trauma that I'd been through in that, in that time, in, in those two, three weeks. I was in the hospital for over a month, nearly two. Um, and so 2017, when I'm writing, well, 2016, um, I, I was working with the girls and I wrote the book, uh, and guys, and then I wrote the book in 2017 because I didn't really know what to do with it. It was just interviews. And then, you know, I decided to put it in book form. And then, you know, uh, I speak into um, medical professionals and speaking to professionals within my church and speaking to pastoral support and things like that. I realised what I'd gone through. So I started seeking out other survivors to find out if these feelings I was feeling was normal. Because I didn't know what, if, how I was feeling, if it was normal or not. I had a normal day in my life since I was eight. You know, I've raised a family and I had 12 years off the drink and, and drugs, but not, all, you know, not always in the right sort of mind and then ended up homeless and addicted to co crack cocaine. And then in 2014, I met my partner. She was serving in a food bank. I was there for a cup of coffee. Um, she took pity on me and became my angel. Um, I got clean. Um, I, you know, I've been clean ever wow. since. I, mm -hmm. I was sat in a crack house on the 26th of June, 2014. Okay, so 2014, you met your angel? Yeah, I met wow. for the first time in 2014. She served uh -huh. me in the food. She, she bought me tobacco and stuff like that. And then a, a few months later, about five, six months later, I found myself in a crack house. I hadn't seen her for mm. a while. Uh, you know, like I say, 10, 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, I've, I've, I've got this pipe of crack cocaine. And I said... God, I don't even know if he exists, but, you know, if you do, either kill me now and take my life or take oh, away this thirst, take away this hunger for drugs because I can't deal with it anymore. Um, oh, my God. I had that same power with God, like take away my life or take away this pain. And yep. he took away the pain. And it's nothing compared to what you've gone through, but it was excruciating. All I'd ever been wow. was disappointment on myself a disappointment on my family I didn't want to be like that my daughter was only five six at the time you know and I was trying my best to keep it together but I I, I couldn't do it anymore and I said God just take away this pain take away this thirst take away this hunger I'll take my life because I can't deal with it anymore and I fell asleep and I don't know if you know anything about crack cocaine but that's the last thing you want to do when you're on crack cocaine but I fell asleep I believe God put me that's to sleep the, that's the last thing you want to do is sleep Crack cocaine, so it's it's making you, it's an upper. It's not something that's going to make you want to sleep. It's something that's going to make you want to do other things. And, um, you know, it puts you in a certain state of mind. But I fell asleep. Mm. And I woke up about two minutes past 12, 27th of June, 2014. And I haven't used the day since. He took away that want to use drugs. He took all that away. He took away the power that drugs and alcohol had over me, you know, and I've been clean ever since, you know, and then it, it just left me with my mental health to sort out, which I had to sort out after the breakdown in 2015. Um, I got with my partner at the end of 2014. We, we got together, 
like I say, February 2015, I started feeling really ill. Um, and by the 22nd of March, I was physically dead. Um, and then these weeks coming up now, um, up to the mid-April, you know, the first few weeks in April, I was an absolute nutcase trying to attack people. Didn't know who I, you know, I, th- I, th- I thought that they were just torturing me uh, as a for a laugh just because the world was going to end. And then I met Jesus at the end of my bed. You met Jesus at the end of your bed? I met Jesus wow. in my bed. That would have been the Sunday just gone. And I met him for the first time and I heard the words, you're going to be all right. But he was hanging about at the end of my bed but because I went mute. I, I couldn't speak or anything. I wouldn't speak. But he was just there. And then at one point, you know, to, towards mid-April, I said, who are you? And then I got, he said, Jesus. And I'm like, oh, well, if you really are, then I'll give up. I'll give up. I'll take you into my life. And all I'd seen was it, was, it was like a dark film over my eyes for those few weeks. And it just fell away. And I could, like, see normally again. I'd had this rash, this adverse reaction that started there and finished on the bottom of my torso. And they, for the first time, I'd said to the nurse, I, I would like a wash, and she brought a, a bowl in for me to wash. And as I, I went to wash, and I, I was washing my body, and as I was washing my body, this rash was just peeling away, coming away from my body. And people say, yeah, no, no, it can't be like, and it did. Um, so God's on his truth. It just as I was washing, it was just disappearing and peeling away, just 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 like Amazing. skin. And it just and it went. It totally went. I started getting better. I'd, uh, I'd had a job before I went in. I got made redundant while I was in hospital. I got two hundred pounds, and they said to me, "If you reach eight stone, you can go home." I wanted to go home. Wanted to get home for my uh, stepboy's birthday, which was uh, May the first. So I made a conscious decision that I was going to eat. And um, so I was having breakfast and then going down into the canteen and buying breakfast and then eating all through the day and then getting two for one pizzas on the night and eating a pizza myself. And then the, you know, the nurses, I was giving the nurses the other pizza. And on the last night I'd run out of money. So they bought me one, uh, which was really nice. And I just started getting better. And I started working with trauma, started talking to people. I wrote my first book, which is about what I've, you know, basically about my life, you know, losing people to suicide and murder. A personal a person, apocalypse. Oh, it ramblings of a troubled man. And, you know, I, I, I speak about the life that I went through and, you know, my adoption and finding my real mom and how I messed up in, in my life. And then, you know, how I got clean and sober. You know, and I talk about some of the things that um, that happened within the poetry uh, and I explain, but I really didn't look at this sort of healing from the sexual abuse um, because that's the hardest thing for a guy like me to admit. So, you know, I, my own mind and that I was working with the church and, you know, volunteering and doing alpha courses and school, school SOSL, which is school supernatural life. And I was growing as a Christian and growing as a, a person and uh, then covid hit and, and i really struggled with the first lockdown when mm-hmm. i like sit there and watch 1980s films as you can see behind me i've got a massive affinity for films so all i did was watch films um and then the second we, we, we got let out and then we got another lock a friend of mine said who's who's a hostage negotiator actually he said why don't you put yourself into some more projects i'd written the second book by that time um it had been published by a publisher friend of mine has had the first um i had a bit of a mini breakdown and i asked him to take them off sale 
Um, and then I had people offering to do it for me again. And, you know, I kept saying no. And I started speaking to people like myself that had been through the mill. Started laughing with some of these guests and crying with them, realising that we could shed off that toxicity of, 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 of male bravado and rip away that mask of, 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 of shame and talk about it unashamedly, be open and honest. Um, and it was on one of my shows when somebody opened their heart to me and I'm like, well, yeah, I went through it um, and we spoke about it. When I started talking about my sexual abuse from then, I had a minor operation a few months ago, which left me in quite a bit of pain for a few weeks. Um, so I sat down and I decided that I was going to republish the first two books. So I gave myself a crash course on publishing. And then within an hour, I had the first two books as ebooks. Um, the next day, I reformatted them for paperback. Uh, and within two days, they were out for sale on Amazon. Um, I've been banned from. Um, banned and banned shadow banned by facebook because they see this book as right. a weapon um, as I, a weapon for what as a weapon they see it as a weapon so when i when, when i've tried to put it out sometimes it, i'll get a ban because they say that i'm posting posts about weapons and it is a weapon against human traffickers because not only does it give the stories, but it gives the statistics. It gives tells you how to spot a human trafficker, how to spot someone that's been trafficked. And this is all coming from the horse's mouths. This is all coming mm -hmm. from people that have been trafficked. People don't like the truth. Uh, the amount yeah. of aggravation I've had for this is amazing. Um, you know, I've been trolled. I've been threatened. Um, I was told by somebody that men can't possibly understand about trafficking and can't possibly understand about rape because men can't be raped by definition. I know they can because I've been through it. Um, and I know many people that have been through it. So, you know, I'm still getting the aggro, but I'm still pushing to get it out. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing things like this. I started my podcast to give other people a voice. And by doing that, I kind of felt that my voice was being lowered a little bit. So I wanted to open myself up to do speak to people like yourself. You know, what people don't realise is 40.3 million, 40.3 million people in, in this world are stuck in some sort of trafficking, whether that be um, sexual slavery, exploitation, forced pornography, forced labour, harvested for... For organs. Organs, harvested for labour. Forced reproduction. Yeah, for babies. It's, it's never ending. 40.3 million. 40.3 million. That's... It's rising. It was 40.3 million in 2016 when I wrote that. 2016, 2017. Wow. Yeah, because really when I read that 800,000 are trafficked every year, I was like, wow. And the amount of deception and cover-up for that. What do you know about New World Order um, International Traffic Ring? I know it exists. I know that there are these things that sit outside of the periphery, outside of your peripheral vision, the things that we don't necessarily see, but we know are there um, and we ignore it. And trafficking is one of those things because we don't, we don't want it. You know, many people, normal people don't want it in their lives. They don't, you know, they might watch things like Taken or watch a documentary on Channel 5 or whatever, and they'll go, oh, that's that's disgusting, and then do nothing about it. You know, they just want to be entertained. I can't blame them for that. I can't sit by and, you know, see it anymore. But lots of British celebrities 
of my era of the 70s and 80s were out as paedophiles. You know, I had a friend that was, who wrote a book called Out of the Shadows. He just wanted to be seen, just wanted the stars to go across. He was trafficked by Catholic priests. I've got nothing against Catholicism. As I say, you know, I'm a Christian myself. But he was he was, he was trafficked by uh, and abused by, by Catholic priests, um, and he killed himself because he, he he just he couldn't go on anymore. I've lost people to suicide because they can't think of any way out. They can't get past that toxic bravado. They can't get past that mask that we have to wear as men, you know, because some see it as what I'm doing, as emasculating. And if, if that's emasculating, fine. Uh, it takes a lot for a man. I, I, I believe that men are getting the raw deal. You know, you hear about the women... You hear about the kids, but the men there, you know, the men that are stuck in domestic violence, uh, violent relationships, the men that are stuck in uh, servitude, you don't hear their stories. So, you know, I wanted to make sure when I wrote that book that I got some of the male voices, um, but because the female voices outweigh the male voices, I felt that I needed to be a male voice myself and wipe away that toxicity and say, it's okay for a guy to feel this way. It's okay for a guy to be emotional. It's okay for a guy to cry. It's okay for a guy to talk about these things. And it's okay for a guy to um, realize that he was sexually abused. It's okay for a guy to talk about it. Um, you know, the, the Me Too movement is great but not for guys because there are not many people standing out there and speaking about it. So I needed to be a voice. I agree. Some of the movements in their good intention to empower women have emasculated men, have vilified. Instead of healing like what you're doing, it turned female against male, you know, the feminine against masculine. Like you said, some can't think of a way out and the system, the legal system, is also no help. I quickly did a Google earlier, and back in 2011, this is statistics from Bureau of Justice, 100,000 of child victims of sex trafficking, but only 150 cases were brought to court. So 150 out of 100,000. So how do people find justice? How do people who were victimized through child trafficking, how do they find their voice again? Many don't. Many never will. It's unfortunate. And it's, it's a sad truth and the sad state of affairs that there isn't really a, a forum for survivors, which is why I've created a forum for survivors. I've created uh, Today, I sat down and created uh, a, a Facebook group, which is the Council of survivors voices because we need a voice you know there are three natural states to be in um, we are the victim of our circumstance we then become survivors mm -hmm. of the events mm -hmm. and many people only ever stay in that survivorship mm -hmm. what people don't realize is there's another one after that mm -hmm. that's to thrive to thrive okay Many people never get to that thrivership. They never, because they're not able to shift their mentality. Um, many 
um, survivors aren't able to talk openly. They don't have a, a forum where they can speak openly about their problems, which is why I started the Live and Undrugged podcast. So, you know, I've interviewed everybody from bank robbers to a serial killer, but, you know, a lot of people that have come on um, have been through horrific abuse um, and the books, you know, you know this this book and, and, and the next book that will be out, follow up to Between the Streetlights. It's about people finding their voice. It's my podcast, but, you know, it's a voice box for other people. Like you probably agreed that your podcast is a voice box for people like me, which is great. Um, we need more of that. And it's only people like me that, that are now coming out um, and wanting to educate that are offering people now a chance through books like this to sort of, because there are people that are still stuck in it. Mm-hmm. And there are people, you know, still, still the victims that are not able to escape or, or they've only just freshly escaped and they're not able to deal with it mentally. Or there's some that have a problem with wanting their name or their face to be out there and they want anonymity. And what, what this does is, it gives people a chance to be anonymous, but retain their voice. And some people know what they want to say, but aren't always able to say it as eloquently as they may need to. So that's why I sit down with them and we discuss, you know, what needs, you know, what they want to say and whether it'll be written as a chapter or whether it'll be written as a letter or a poem or a bit of prose. Um, you know, it's up to them and they're just given one name to go by. And it's not always their, their original, you know, it's often a, 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 a different name. But they know who they are. They all have copies of the book. You know, I've been told that it gave them a certain amount of closure to speak about, to be able to take control of your own past and your own trauma means that you need to be able to speak about it and to get it out. Not everybody's as confident as I am. Believe me, I, I didn't want to do this. This was far from my mind wanting to do this. Right. God led me to, and it's, it's what the circumstances led me to. If you've been through a certain way of life, if, you, if you've been through adversity, adversity builds warriors and those warriors need to educate. And that's what I am. I'm an educator through the combined, uh, and all I do is share the combined wisdom that's been given to me uh, and, and pass it on. You know, there are no dues, no fees, no, you know, it's it's a gift. It's a free gift. Uh, I give my time freely and willingly because other people won't. I guess I'm the face of their stories. Right. And human trafficking is, especially with all the cover-up and censorship about it, like you've uh, experienced it's it's growing in incredible number, in staggering number. And so we really need people like you to speak up about this. I didn't know until two years ago at the start of uh, the pandemic where I hear more and more. And I heard about the New World Order International Child Sex Trafficking. I'm like, what? And in my line of work, I help adults recover from trauma. And, and harmonize themselves into, you know, feeling like uh, a complete person, into soul power. But to the level of being sexually victimized and trafficked and sold off by their own parents, some of them. One of uh, the interviews I've done here on the show was her father sold her off to his friends and whatnot. And that was heartbreaking. 
where I'm trying to focus here is the escape. And that's the title of your book, Escaping Out of It. It's really traumatizing for a lot and some of them don't make it. But I want to highlight that you made it. You made it out through divine intervention, through, you know, there's something in you that just didn't give up. And I call that your soul. What are the things that you learned from the people you interviewed uh, for your book? I learned that these people learned how to be resilient, learned how to survive, to do what they needed to do, that people have mechanisms to be able to distance themselves from the stuff that's been done to them. Um, so like I distanced myself by creating my own worlds in my head, and by creating different personas and different different people and different lies, you know, there's there's one at the start of the book. It's called I'm I'm Atryoshka, which uh, Matryoshka is the um, nesting dolls, Hungarian nesting dolls. What people wrongly call a babushka is actually called a Matryoshka. She learned that she was told uh, by a madam that she was in servitude to this madam was in servitude to as well to these certain people and, and neither of them could get out but she said that the way that she dealt with it was she saw herself her soul her heart as a matryoshka and so you would take the she would take these every time uh, raped or, or you know had to do something she didn't want to do she would take that and she would encase it a little doll in her mind and then she'd take the next thing and then put that little doll into another little doll and she would create this these nesting dolls within her mind as a visual aid this lady had given her a, a matryoshka nesting doll so she could kind of put herself into it so that's how she dealt with it i love that you know other, other people you know they they dealt with it by music or other people dealt with it by just going into their own mind and thinking about things spoke to one girl who did mathematics in her mind um, every, every time she was a bit that, that, that didn't make the book but um, everybody has a different way to cope with trauma but what we have to realise is that mo- a lot of us we carry this trauma around with us but this trauma isn't ours to own because this trauma wasn't caused by us so we have to then separate ourselves from that trauma and by speaking by learning uh, educating and we separate ourselves from the event. And once we separate ourselves from the events, they become a teaching aid. And not, not they they don't matter because they do. The events always matter, but they become a way, a bridge to be able to educate. They become a teaching aid instead of a something that's dragging you down. One thing that I had to learn was forgiveness. And not for them, but for myself, because when we don't forgive people or we have unforgiveness in our lives, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's not going to happen. They could right. they could do hoops about what you think of them or how they're making you feel. They'd probably it, be happy if they found out that they were dragging you down. A lot of people like to stay in your head, but they're living in your head rent-free. In 2017, my mum died in the Easter, and then two months later, my sister had a baby. She uh, two days old. My sister had had quite a traumatic birth, so she went to bed and left the baby with her partner. They already had one daughter together, so she trusted him. And then when she came down from her sleep, the baby was limp. The ambulance was called. He said that she'd fallen off his knee. A couple of days later, he admitted to the police that he'd punched her and hit her and shook her. Oh, my God. 
she died five days later. Five days later, she died. Um, so, so you lost your mom and you lost your two-day-old niece in the same year, within months of each other. In months of each other. And I hated him. You know, I had these feelings of vengeance and not that I could do anything because he was hundreds of miles away. It was tearing me apart. And even as a Christian, it was tearing me apart. And we couldn't have a funeral for quite a long time. It took over a year to have the funeral because when he was in prison, he got sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 10 years. But he was 23. So he would have been out in his 30s. But less than a year into his sentence, he had his throat slit in the middle of the night by his cellmate, was murdered by his cellmate uh, over uh, a drug debt. Um, and he, then was murdered. Had, the- he was murdered in his cell. Oh. Um, a rapist of all things. <laughs> Talk about ironic. Yeah. It took a year. Nobody ever found out where he was buried or that was held in secret. You know, we were allowed a, a funeral and... You know, a year later, I, I went back up north and one, one of the leaders of my church took me, spent time with me and, um, you know, I got through, through the funeral and I was fine. And then I came out and um, lit a cigarette and as I did that, his mum put her arms around me and gave me a hug and I broke because I hated her as well, but I broke. And then I went to sit in the car and that's when I realised I needed to forgive them both. Not for them, but for, for me. You. Yeah. And it was a journey. And it took quite a long time. And I, I still struggle with it sometimes. You know, these people are not allowed to live rent-free in my head anymore. You know, I, I speak about these events because it's better than keeping them in. To forgive somebody and to love somebody biblically, uh, the Bible commands us to love everybody. To love does not mean like. To love does not mean you condone anything that they've done. But sometimes to love is just to not wish them any harm or any more harm. Sometimes love in a biblical sense means love them enough not to let them get in your own mind. And that's what I had to do. And it's taught, you know, that's taught me resilience. It's taught me that I'm stronger than I thought I was. It's taught me that there are people out there that have been through, people listen to my story and they say it's horrific, but I know people that have been through a lot lot more horrific stories than me. Right. And for a guy like him to punch a baby, he would have gone through such horrific trauma himself. Well, I don't think he went through a horrific childhood. I think he snapped. He snapped. Um, He snapped. You know, I believe that he was tired. Neither of them slept. I was told that the baby cried a lot, demanded a lot of attention, which babies do. I know this. I'm a father myself. Several times over. My my first husband was like that. He slapped my two-year-old across the face, left her red for a few days. And he, he would also shake the baby when they were crying. And I just didn't allow him. I saw that and I didn't allow him to, no. to handle them when they were upset. When they're happy, yeah, they can play on the floor. But I, I was watchful. Mm. I was... It, it was... Horrible. But for someone to, to turn into like that, there there's some underlying factor that we don't know. We don't see. No. Why did what um, did? I don't know. Th- this is where compassion comes in because you're talking about forgiveness. By forgiving others, you also forgive yourself. That's really important, especially in your story where you said um, you didn't think anybody would believe you. 
um, hence you repressed everything and, you know, not trusting yourself, believing that, you know, it, it's like going against your own self. And that takes a lot of for- forgiveness to overcome this. Moving from victim to survivor to thriving, um, is there anything else you want to add to that piece? Well, I did say that I'd, I'd read something from the book. Uh, yes, um, please. Uh, and this is just a, um, this is a, one of the letters that, that I helped construct because for some people it was a way of them finding a, a gr- something to ground on, you know, finding a, a little bit of peace in that madness. And it's called A Letter to My Mother. Um, it's not an e- easy to listen to, so I do apologise. Um, and it's anonymous. Um, they, they, you know, they want it to be known as just anonymous. And it goes, Dear Mum, I love you. Because despite everything you have ever done, you gave birth to a good man. Our mum, I hate you. For all you put me through in the world, you made me live in your world. Mum, I cry for you. For the bond between mother and son is supposed to be strong, an unbearable bond of unconditional love. A babe is supposed to suckle at his mother's breast and not lie in a broken basket and gaze upon the man with his, uh, with his face where mine should be for sustenance, not for sexual gratification. A child should grow and wander about in his home and be let, not be left in the living room to watch television whilst he wonders what the noises are coming from the room next door. Should a child not be able to walk from room to room without the worry of stepping over dirty needles and use condoms discarded without a care? A bit like me, really. Should a child not have its innocence for as long as possible instead of losing it the second it was born? Should it not have been you tucking me into bed instead of the random men or even me covering you with a dirty blanket when you lay unconscious on the sofa? Naked as the day you was born. Yet how could I watch you shake in the cold? Should it not be mother caring for son and not the other way around? Should a child not fall asleep to a lullaby and not loud, inaudible music mixed with voices of too many random people laughing, shouting and drinking from foul-smelling glass bottles, staggering and vomiting up in my toy box? Should a child not be able to sleep without the fear of one of many men you make me call uncle, calling in the night and touching me in the personal places that I barely learned the names for? Oh, mum, how can you hold my hand whilst he touches me, kisses me? How can you tell me that you love me and let me go through that? And how can you let it happen so many times by so many men? Even though you put me through all of this, mum, I still love you because you taught me not how not to be, how not to be, how not to act and treat everyone with love because I could never bear to treat my children the way that you taught me. Mum, I hate you for the person that you were, for making me hate you the way I do. But mum, I love you because I am commanded to. Mum, I forgive you because if I don't, I may poison my own life um, and you have caused me more than enough pain and suffering no more in forgiveness I reject you your ways and everything that you were mum I pray for you 
even though you are no longer here, because I know you made a deal with Satan long ago. You may never be judged upon this earth by its law, but you will be judged by him. Mum, with this letter, I let you go. There is no longer any room in my life for you. So, Mum, I say goodbye because your circumstances your circumstance is the direct consequence of your life, your actions, and my life is better without you. Goodbye, Mum. I love you. I hate you. I forgive you. Your son, Anon. I think that tells you, you know, that's why I do it. Yeah. Thank that's you for doing it. Yeah. That's, that's why I fight for men. I fight for women as well. That's why I fight for men. Because many people feel that they will be ridiculed. Many men feel they will be ridiculed, you know, and if it means I get some ridicule, then fine. I'm a big boy. I can handle that. You know, what I can't handle is people taking their own lives needlessly because they can't live with the consequences of their childhood, the consequences of what they've been through. I cannot and will not stand idly by while these people fade away on their stories. Are gone. I speak up for the people that need a voice, not just sexual abuse people, no, not just people that have been through sexual abuse. Anybody that's been through any sort of adversity is a survivor. You know, whether it be violence, mental illness, addiction, um, losing people to suicide, losing people to homicide. It's just these are all snap decisions in, in, in one way. And, you know, if, if, if you go one way, that's suicide. And if you go the other way, that's homicide. They're two extremes. And for some people, there's, 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 there's no way out. And what I do is I offer a way out because even if you haven't got the strength to give your name, I will okay. tell the story and help you get it out. Because the whole thing about talking to someone whether it's been recorded or not, whether, you know, whether it's going in a book or whether it's going, you know, just by getting it out, by facing it and speaking about it, we learn to not just live with it, but use it to... You release become, the shame. Yeah. Shame, you know, guilt yep. and shame are two killers. I've dealt with them my whole life. That's why I had the breakdown. You know, guilt and shame are the things that I've been through. Um I realised when I wrote this book, I, I used to see women as sexual objects, as, as pleasure. Spoke to these people, and I realised that that's that's not the way that we should, you know, should be. That's not the way that we should see. That's not the way that we should feel. So I made a conscious decision to stop watching pornography because I realised that I own up. I watched a lot of pornography. We don't see any. The arm in it, or oh, what's the arm? It's only pornography, it's not real. Well, it is because many people are in servitude and you don't know. So while people are watching porn, you don't know which ones are um, in domestic servitude or not. You know, and, and viewing pornography like that objectifies people. And how film. many of those like, uh, in pornography, how many of them were trafficked for well, exactly commercial I, purposes? I, exactly. I, I, I don't know, but, the, you know, it is yeah. a number there. You know, and it's not nominal either. Um, you know, so I, I had to make that decision to stop and stop objectifying women. Hence, when I did my first ever professional photography shoot, 
I took that picture and I got a professional model to come in. And believe it or not, she was fully clothed. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to show how a photograph can be manipulated, um, even when somebody is fully clothed, to look like nudity. Um, and hence, I spoke about not an object because we mm. objectify women. We objectify women. Objectify men. Men objectify men. You know, whatever your um, yeah. sexual orientation. That's that's you know that's not for me to judge. But objectifying mm. people, and we shouldn't. Yeah, and it's really amazing, and and you you can't fault yourself for that because that was the training you got. That that was how you were treated. The abused at some point become the abuser. But what I love about your story. Jack is you put a stop to it you said no more so many times you made a conscious decision so many times to no longer do drugs to no longer objectify women to forgive so those are all conscious decisions that you the last step from survival to thrive is that exactly that to to remember that you have a power of choice that you can make that decision consciously to thrive instead of uh, being stuck in that survivor mentality. Jack, uh, how can people reach you? I can be found on the Accidental Journalist page uh, on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash jwgreg. I have a website, which is jwgreg.wordpress.com. And everything about me can be found there. It's a veritable rabbit hole of um, everything that I've ever done, this interview will be linked to the page as well. So, you know, all my interviews, my films, a- anything that, that you want to find out, even down to um, some advice on there from people that have been through the same sort of thing. Um, it's all on there. It's massive, but yeah, it's there. Uh, my books can be found either on that website and uh, in the shop, um, or they can be found on Amazon just by typing in my name, Jack W. Gregory. Or you can contact me via Facebook if you want a signed copy and I'll, I'll gladly post one off. Yeah, or, you know, I can sign post you to wherever you want to go to get any of my products. Just amazing, amazing journey. I, I love the part of the divine intervention, meeting Jesus at the end of the bed. That gave me goosebumps. Jack, I can't thank you enough. Thank you for joining us here at Soul Power to the People podcast. And good luck to you and best of everything to all the lives you're going to touch and you've touched through being the voice for the abused and the trafficked. Thank you so much, Jack. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Soul Power to the People podcast with Tess Vergara. We can no longer be the spectators of our own destruction. Take back your mind, take back your voice, take back your soul, take back your power. Join me again next time for the next episode of Soul Power to the People.